Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today I'm, I'm really excited about the founder and also investor that we have joining us. You know, he's uh, done it multiple times. He's been involved with incredible rocket ships, you know, that have gone from like almost like uh, double-digit investors to like, double-digit like uh, employees to like 1,500 plus like in no time. Uh, he's invested in multiple companies, some of the most successful ones like Stripe and and, and, and and others that we're going to be talking about. But I think that, again, you know, we're going to be talking about the building, the scaling, financing, exiting, and all of those good things that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Elad Gill, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks so much, Alejandro. So you were an undergrad in MIT. You were there doing math and biology. I mean, that's quite the combination. So what got you into both things to begin with? Yeah, so I did my undergrad at UCSD and then my um, PhD at MIT. And um, for undergrad, I double majored in math and uh, molecular biology. And, you know, I did the math out of a mixture of interests. I just thought it was fun, but also I thought it would be really useful um, for things like um, computer science. And of course, I should have just studied computer science instead of math in hindsight. And then um, molecular biology, I just was really into biology and um, thought there's, you know, really interesting things to be done uh, with what was then called genetic engineering is now called synthetic biology. And I thought it could be a good area for impact. So why moving to Silicon Valley then, you know, after, after you graduated and did the studies? I mean, what, what, what got you into Silicon Valley? Yeah, when I, got, when I first did my PhD, my thinking was that I would um, go into academia after. And I, I thought that I'd be a researcher and I'd work on different aspects of, you know, either human longevity or cancer or certain diseases. And um, I think I came to the false conclusion during my PhD that a single individual really couldn't impact that much in human health because anytime you'd come up with a discovery, people would discover it very rapidly uh, right away. You know, you'd always see one group publishing on a specific gene the same time that five other groups find the exact same thing. And so it, it didn't feel to me like if I stayed in the field, I would actually be able to push the field forward because everything happened simultaneously with others. In hindsight, I now think that's wrong. I think there's all sorts of examples where individuals make a really big difference or impact on a field or start a whole new area, like studying a specific organism or starting a new system or whatever it may be. Uh, but at the time, I just thought, you know, if I, if, I'll, if I work 
70 hours a day, but then I end up with the same thing everybody else does. And why work 70 hours a day on this? Maybe I can go find some other place that I think could really help push the world forward. So then what happened? What happened next? Because obviously, you know, that uh, first rodeo in Silicon Valley, you know, ended up not unfolding in the way that you had a hope for, which obviously, you know, like uh, it's like a door. One, you know, it's going to be closing and another one more exciting is going to be opening. But how was that for you? I'm sure it was not easy at first. Yeah. Uh, you know, initially, I think when you come from a new uh, field or you're switching fields, then people kind of look at you weird. And I definitely didn't want to get a job in biotech for a number of reasons. Um, and so I decided to go into technology. And I think the math background helped a bit with that. And so I, I managed to land an internship at a tech company. And then that translated into a job. And I moved out to Silicon Valley right as the technology bubble was collapsing, um, sort of with the first internet wave. And so I was working at a company that was backed by Sequoia and Matrix. And when I joined the company, it was about 120 people. It grew to 160 and then it shrank to, I think, 12 or 15 people over five rounds of layoffs. So I got laid off in the third round of layoffs. And back then, everybody was getting laid off. It was mass scale shutdowns of companies. Um, there was large scale layoffs. I think we'll see not quite the same extent, but I, I think we'll see similar things happen next year in 2025 in tech. And um, it was a big reset. And so all these people who used to be VP product at companies suddenly would join companies as you know, an individual product manager, you know, just to have a job and tons and tons of people left Silicon Valley during that, you know, few year period. Um, so initially I just started offering to work for companies for free because nobody was willing to hire me because A, I had limited experience and B, there just wasn't any jobs at all, you know? And yeah. so I ended up working for free for two startups. And then I ended up uh, working for Plaxo, which was a company where Sean Parker um, co-founded it before he became the founding president of Facebook. And um, then from there, I eventually ended up at Google and, um, you know, Google, I helped start the mobile team and I worked on um, AI for ads targeting and a few other areas. And I guess uh, before we talk about uh, Google, because I'm sure that that was, you know, quite a remarkable experience, you know, especially going through that team, a round of layoffs and, and seeing, you know, like obviously the market, you know, market cycles and, and, and you were talking about what we're going to be encountering in 2025 to what did you learn about market cycles and, and how do you see them now? You know, it definitely um, was very strong grounding from that point on, I think, in three ways. Number one is I was always grateful to have a job. And so I think if you don't, um, if you're in an environment where you don't have uh, employment for a period of time, you realize how precious a job can be, you know, and I had no money and I was just straight out of school. And so, you know, it was kind of tough for a while. And I think that was a really good experience and it really drove home you know, gratefulness or gratitude for employment, <laughs> which I think a lot of people lack today. As you know, second, you just realize that there's gravity and there's reality behind uh, companies. And eventually companies or products have to turn into businesses. And those businesses eventually have to become self-sustaining. And I think that's a lesson that used to be learned every generation, right? Technology used to have these eight to 12 year cycles. And then we ended up with a 20 year boom period from roughly you know, 2000 to 2003 until now. And I think because of that, a lot of people in tech completely forgot that eventually you have to have a business that makes money and eventually you have to have profit margins and you know, eventually all these things have to kind of work. Um, so that, that really got driven home viscerally for me as well. Now, you were saying that uh, you were doing some consulting uh, projects for companies, even working for free for some of them, but eventually you landed in Google. Uh, at a really amazing time. We're talking about 2004. And uh, during that time, you had the opportunity of leading, you know, and starting the mobile team and then also transitioning into Google X. 
So I guess what were some of the major learnings from this period? Yeah, so I never worked at Google X. Um, you know, I worked on um, uh, mobile, which you mentioned, and then I worked on ads related products, including some ads targeting rollouts. Um, and that was a lot of sort of ML centric product stuff or AI centric product stuff. Um, you know, on the mobile side, it was very much sort of a scrappy new effort where um, there wasn't, there was, I think at the time, half an engineer who was sort of maintaining this really old, crappy sort of um, WML index or, you know, WAP index back in the day. So they had specially formatted pages for mobile. Um, and this is before smartphones and everything else. And I think the big insight, um, because, you know, I was asked one year to put together the mobile strategy for Google and what should Google do in mobile. And um, Larry Page at the time was very interested in things like um, MBNOs, mobile virtual network operators, where you, you know, rent network capacity and then you turn it into a potential carrier. And it really felt that all the people who were building those MBNOs didn't really have any sort of control in terms of the ability to um, actually control what was running on the, the handsets or on the network. You still ended up dealing with the same handset manufacturers. And so you were still pretty locked down versus having like an open software ecosystem there. And so one of the things I suggested was, well, should we go and, do a hand, go and do a handset? Because that gives you way more control over the experience. And then at the same time, Andy Rubin um, was starting uh, Android after starting Danger. And um, so uh, Google ended up buying Android. And then Andy really came in with a very crisp vision for how to build this open source software stack for mobile phones. Um, and so he really was the, you know, the, the, the pioneer in terms of thinking through, okay, what, are, what, are, what really needs to be done in terms of, you know, rechanging the handscape and, and software landscape. And then, of course, the iPhone came out and nobody at Google, as far as I know, expected it. And um, that's why if you look at the very first Android device, it has both the keyboard as well as a flip up to have a touchscreen because the, the iPhone had a touchscreen and it was so revolutionary and it was so obviously a better solution. And so that kind of got rushed out. Um, so, you know, I think that was really exciting in terms of just a whole new industry being generated and existing, which is kind of similar to AI today. And then, uh, you know, towards the last year or so that I was there, or maybe two years or so, I switched teams and I ended up working more on um, different ads products, including both UI-centric ones as well as uh, ads targeting related ones. So it sounds like you were having, you know, quite a good time. So what pushed you to uh, perhaps starting Mixer Labs and, and give your notice? You know, what was the, uh, what was the triggering? Yeah, I always wanted to start a company. Um, when I was at MIT, I ran one of the main startup uh, groups there. And, um, you know, if I, I think if I had a stronger either uh, financial footing or something else, I would have started a company right away. But at the time, there also weren't, there was no YC, there was no real strong seed ecosystem, you know, it was actually very hard to start a company. And there's very little information available. And so the, the default path then was you'd go and you'd work somewhere for a couple of years, and then, um, you know, you'd start something. And so really, I went to Google in part because it was an amazing place at an amazing moment in time. And in part, because I thought it could create the network of um, people I could start a company with, you know, great engineers or product people or designers or, you know, people who could really help um, build something amazing. So Mixer Labs ended up being the bridge into Twitter, you know, into a tremendous experience that you had at Twitter. So how, what were you guys doing at Mixer Labs? And then, you know, how did uh, Twitter come knocking? Yeah, with Mixer Labs, um, we were building a really early developer product where you could build a custom um, index on your data and then use that to interrogate geolocation or enable geo features. 
uh, for different types of applications or websites or different things like that. And so we were one of the very early developer-centric tools. You know, at the time, I think Twilio existed and maybe there was like Heroku or something, but there wasn't much. And when we got started, AWS was pretty young as a service, right? And so it was in the early era of like developer tools and APIs. And um, I think we were right in terms of thinking that there's a big shift towards those types of products. And then we were wrong on market size. And I think many first-time founders are like that, right? We First-time founders often build great products, but they don't think as much about go-to-market. And then the second time you start a company, you think, you think more about the market and go-to-market and market structure. And so, um, you know, we ended up... Uh, raising our second round of funding. Our first round was, we were backed by Sequoia and Reed Hoffman and Naval Ravikant and all these great folks. And then um, we raised our second round. And right after we raised our second round, um, you know, we'd launched our product and Twitter had uh, pinged us about a partnership and then it turned into an acquisition conversation. They basically said, hey, we're actually more interested in buying you than partnering with you. You know, on our side, we thought, well, you know, number one, we think the market is probably smaller than we thought it was. And so we don't think this is a great market, but in the hands of Twitter, it could be a great market because at the time Twitter had, you know, tens of thousands of developers or hundreds of thousands of developers on this platform. Um, two, we thought it could be a really great landing place for the team because Twitter at the time was 90 people. And we thought, you know, our, our team would be about 10% of the company, right? In terms of number of people. And so they could really have great careers that are getting in early. Um, third, we thought, you know, it would be a good financial outcome. We thought, okay, like if we do the math and the dilution and keep going and if we have to change direction or if we think it's a small market or whatever it is, what does that look like? Um, and so we thought it would be a good outcome for ourselves and for our investors and for our employees. So in the end, we, we, we decided to go for the acquisition. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm really happy we did, both because I think the various team members ended up having great careers. Um, you know, the, the outcome was strong from an impact perspective in terms of working on things like Twitter, which at the time there was the Arab Spring happening on it and all sorts of big events. Uh, and then, of course, there was the positive financial outcome as well. And how was it also on the, and I don't think people talk about this much, the emotional roller coaster of all of a sudden, you know, handing the keys, you know, of your car to, to someone else, you know, something that you've worked so hard for. I mean, I've heard that. It's like sometimes it feels like it's like a loss that you're experiencing in the family. You know, your first company, you know, to certain degrees, you, you, you feel like you're the company. You have that type of attachment to. Did you experience any of that stuff or not? You know, um, I think that on the one hand, you always. Um, uh, I mean, I guess the honest answer is not really. <laughs> I think, that, <laughs> you know, I thought it was a great experience. I love the company. I love the people I work with, but they're all coming with me. Yeah. And initially we were going to keep working on the same product, but expand it. Now it turned out that um, there was one or two people inside the company that really didn't want the features that we were building to exist. And they continuously blocked us. There was one product manager in particular who was working on mobile who was awful and kept blocking everything we were doing. And when I'd go to um, the CEO at the time or the VP product at the time, they just didn't want to act on that. They were kind of non-confrontational. Um, mm. And so, you know, a lot of, I think the, the sadness came later when we couldn't ship certain things because there was just some random PM who didn't know what he was doing blocking us, right? That was more the issue. And I think that's often the issue at bigger companies when they acquire startups, right? They, one of the key things you have to do is figure out how do I get everybody out of the way so this acquisition can actually accomplish what it's set out to accomplish. And so later, I ended up taking over M&A at Twitter, amongst other areas. 
Um, I moved from the product side and the product org into, into a bunch of operational stuff. And one of the things that we'd always do is we'd ask, okay, well, how do we make sure that this team will thrive once they're bought? And do we integrate them fully? Do we let them work standalone? Like, what does it all mean in terms of this acquisition so that we make sure that there's a good landing spot for people going forward? I mean, in your guys' case, I mean, tremendous experience too, because you were able to, to see Twitter going from like literally 90 employees to over 1,500 people in two years. I mean, how, what, what kind of lessons did you learn around scaling a team so fast so that, you know, perhaps the culture and other critical things don't break? You know, I think that um, a lot broke at Twitter. And so I think that, um, you know, one of the issues at Twitter was, um, you know, the company ended up hiring a lot of really good people, but maybe um, too many people that were too junior for the roles that they had. And often what happens at the time, at least many of them have grown into amazing careers, right? But often what happens is that when a company is, when a company is growing linearly, you can have the team that you hire grow with the company because the rate at which they learn can be slow. And because a company isn't growing that fast, that's fine. If a company is growing exponentially, if you're going from 90 to 500 people to 1500 people over two years, you don't have time to learn. You don't have time to learn management. You don't have time to learn your function. You don't have time to learn any of this stuff. And you need to hire very experienced people who know what they're doing. And so the two places that Twitter didn't hire well was number one, certain aspects of leadership where they tended at least early on to underhire. At the same time, they tended to select against what I'd call like an alpha engineer, like an engineer who's super self-confident and know that they can do really strong work. And um, there was a, this sort of cultural trait that was called like, I think it was be humble or something like that. Or we're looking for humble people. But that ended up screening out for self-confident people as well. And I think that was a very negative filter for the company. Um, and I don't think it, it was um, intentional, but each person kind of interpreted humble their own way. And I, you absolutely shouldn't hire jerks, right? They destroy your culture. And that's not what I'm advocating for. It's just you want people who really know their stuff and who are self-confident on it. And come in and saying, yeah, I can do this. I can build this and I can accomplish these things. And I think they tended to select it against those people, particularly in engineering early. That's incredible. Now for you, you, you stayed there for a few years, for a couple of years, actually. And then, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So at what point does the idea of color, you know, come knocking and how do you go from incubation to launch and, and to bring it to life? Yeah, so, um, you know, when I started color, I had three other co-founders. And um, one of the drivers for the company was my co-founder, Altman, who's now the CEO. Um, you know, he has been public about the fact that he's a carrier for a mutation in a gene called BRCA2, um, which increases the lifetime risk of cancer in both men and women. And in women, it elevates the risk dramatically. You know, depending on the variant you can have, you can have anywhere from, you know, a 30 to I think it's like 70% increased risk chance of breast or ovarian cancer. And so it's, it's, it can, it's very important to know your status of these genes because you can actually do something about it in the case of breast or ovarian cancer, certain types of colon cancer, et cetera. Um, and so the, the reason we started the company was because his family had this gene and he'd had multiple family members uh, pass or get very sick from, from breast cancer. Um, and so we thought, you know, there's this big shift in genomics and big shift in genetic sequencing and nobody's really applied software effectively to the area. So can we make this information more broadly available to people? And so the company had a very strong social mission and very strong personal resonance from sort of the earliest days. You know? And what, what, what ended up being the business model of color? 
how do you guys say make money there? Yeah, color um, started off really focused on genomics and genetic testing and sort of um, providing broad access to this type of information at a tenth the price of what the traditional player cost. Um, so we literally had a product that was probably better and one tenth the price. Now, healthcare is a very distorted market because um, consumers don't want to pay for anything in healthcare or very few things. And so what that means is that the person who actually decides what you get or what gets paid for is the insurance company. And so if something is covered by insurance, people are actually priced indifferent as to whether it's $3,000 or it's $300. They just don't care. And they really don't want to pay the $300. They'd rather go get the two or $3,000 test if they don't have to pay anything out of pocket, right? And so it's, a distort, it's distorted from that perspective. And then it's distorted from the perspective of the person who decides what you get to do is your physician. And then your insurance company pays for it, and then it impacts you. And so your physician could decide not to do things that are really useful for you, and they could decide to do things that don't really help you that much. And so it's a very odd chain. And so value creation in healthcare is hard because there is an incentive alignment because between end user delivery of something good versus who decides what happens to you, which is your doctor, and who pays, which is the payer. Um, so eventually we morph the company into... Uh, and I should say by we, really, Ottman, uh, morph the company into more of a population healthcare delivery um, software platform or platform more generally. And during COVID, um, you know, uh, Color did all sorts of um, uh, software for delivery of tests across multiple states. There was big state deals or big, you know, institutional deals with universities, as well as things like vaccine delivery um, and other things. So now it's really this this population healthcare delivery company for both public health programs, enterprises, employers, a variety of different, different types of groups. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. Uh, a good example here is Aurora.tech which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. Now, when you are building a company, you know, from nothing, a startup, I mean, you obviously have the uncertainty, you know, of, uh, of what's coming. But then you also have the, the issues of, uh, you know, building something in healthcare, which is regulation. So how do you find that balance and uh, you navigate all these hoops? Yeah, you know, you learn a couple of things. Um, you know, for example, the regulators at the FDA are very smart, right? And they're really science driven and they really focus on the science of things, which I think is great. Um, now, different um, subdivisions of the FDA will have different um, uh, viewpoints on the same topic. Just like at any other organization, there'll be different groups that will view something slightly differently. And so part of navigating a regulator is often knowing which part of the regulator to engage with. So that if you work with them, um, 
you're working with a group that's already positively inclined to your worldview, or is at least has alignment with how you think about the world. And that's easier than going to the group that thinks the opposite or disagrees, right? A priori, you don't have a chance to convince necessarily. Um, so there's regulation on that level. And then also, if you're working in labs or diagnostics, you have other levels, um, things known as CLIA and CAP, which are a set of approaches that you have to take um, in order to be in compliance with running a a lab that can actually do business in different states. There's New York state-related regulations. So there's multiple regulations at every level. In the state of California, you can only hire certain types of people to work in the lab, which isn't true in other states. So there's all sorts of state-by-state things too. Um, So it gets pretty complicated. And um, one of the things you have to do early on is, number one, you know, at least for us, the focus was how do we make sure we get proper information to patients and that there's high fidelity there because we never wanted to make an error. Um, uh, because it was such important for a person, right? And then secondly, how do we make sure that we do that in a regulatory compliant manner? I find the calls today for more AI regulation to be striking because it's clear that none of these people have ever dealt with a regulatory environment because they're speaking of it in very naive terms. You know, oh, if, if, if there's regulation of AI, then um, we'll have the smartest people in AI actually setting the rules. And you're like, no, 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 you're not going to have anybody in AI setting the rules. The people setting the rules will be legislators and people who may not understand technology as well, you know, <laughs> or um, people will often compare AI regulation to nuclear. And once um, the nuclear regulator was established in the 70s, we stopped approving nuclear plant designs, right? The regulator blocked progress for 50 years. And so why would you want to do that? And so the only possible interpretation is some form of like um, regulatory capture. Hey, we really want to make sure that we capture all the value here. And the best way to do that is to regulate it because incumbents win. Or it's some some form of um, concern for the future. But then I, I'd be more concerned if there was a bad regulator driving what can and cannot be built in AI than the industry. You know, And so I just kind of worry that it's a very naive viewpoint that a lot of people are expressing right now. I hear you. Now for color that is uh, publicly disclosed. How much have the company raised so far? Uh, I don't know what the uh, public number is. It's in the hundreds of millions. Yeah, I think at least uh, what you see out there is 484 million. But uh, but in any case, one thing that uh, I found very interesting in your journey is that on the on the side, you know, since 2007, you were actually investing in companies. So what got you into investing in companies in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I think I made my first investment around, um, geez, I'm not sure actually, maybe it was 07. I thought it was closer to 09, but maybe it was 07. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe it was 07 or 08. Um, yeah. So, I mean, really what happened is, is a lot of, uh, people that I was, um, a a lot of people would come to me for advice because I was starting a company myself at the time. And I just started helping different people with ideas around people who would fund them for like angels or um, VCs, or I'd help them with the early hires or advice on go to market or whatever it was. And so people just started asking me if I wanted to invest as part of their rounds. And so it just happened very organically. I don't think it was quite the way it is today where every, every founder has like a side fund or an angelist syndicate or, you know, a rolling fund or something else. I think back then there just weren't that many people angel investing. I think part of that was there just wasn't a lot of money in the ecosystem. And the only money you could ever invest was personal money. And so I put something like half of my net worth, which wasn't a lot of money, into startups at the time, right? Because you couldn't raise a fund as a, as a founder or as an individual back then. Um, and so it's just a very different ecosystem. 
And, uh, you know, pretty unbelievable now, you know, if you take a look at some of the companies that uh, that you invested in, I mean, we're talking about, or advised, you know, we're talking about Airbnb, Coinbase, Figma, Flexport, GitLab, Gusto, Instacart, and the list goes on and on and on. I guess uh, one thing that comes to mind is, what do you look for in founders? I mean, you've even invested in a company like Stripe very early on. I mean, what do you see? What are some of those traits that you're like, that pattern recognition, you know, is like, is like clicking for you. You're like, this is a company that I want to invest in. Yeah. You know, I think, um, unlike most early stage investors, I tend to be more product market centric than founder centric. I think founders are incredibly important, right? I started two companies myself and, you know, I think founders matter a lot. Um, but I've seen really great people get absolutely crushed by bad markets. And I've seen pretty mediocre people do extremely well in a very good market. And so I think the product market matters most for whether a company will be successful or not. That said, obviously, founders are incredibly important. And I think founders are what takes something from that naturally goes from zero to one, from one to 10 or one to 100 or however you want to think about it. Um, and, uh, you know, usually I think founders, um, I'd almost view it as like the, the Apple framework, right? You had um, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and then Tim Cook. And you kind of need those archetypes over the course of the company. So early on, you need somebody who can sell very well. And selling may mean um, convincing employees to join you. It could mean getting your first customer. It could mean raising money, right? But you're constantly selling as a founder. And then secondly, you need somebody who can build. And that was Wozniak, right? And um, you need to be able to actually deliver the thing. And if you don't have somebody who can build, of course, you don't have anything, right? You're just talking. Um, and that's kind of almost like the, the caricature of the MBA startup, right? Three MBAs show up with nobody who can build anything and they just talk a lot and have a PowerPoint deck, but it doesn't matter. Um, versus, you know, three hackers show up and they've already built the prototype and you can play with it and you can see how it works. Um, and then later in the life of a company, you need a Tim Cook type. You need somebody who can actually scale things and run the ship and do operations and all that stuff. And usually that isn't one of the founders, but every once in a while it is. But most founders just aren't that interested in all the intricacies of, you know, people issues and all the rest of the stuff that tends to come with a company working. Um, so usually I look for those two characteristics, you know, is, is it, and then there's other things like, are, are they learning very rapidly? Um, can they make their own decisions? And are they decisive? Do they have an eye for talent? Are they aggressive or, um, you know, really want to win? Are they competitive? Maybe is a better way to put it. Um, and I think a lot of those things were kind of forgotten during this last period of like free money or, you know, very, um, available capital because, um, you forget that ultimately business is very competitive. And I think the CEO of uh, Shopify had this really great blog post about culture where he said, we're not a family, we're a team, and we focus on performance. And I think that was kind of forgotten for a while. Everybody got into different forms of politics and different forms of things almost got too unhurried. There was no urgency. Um, everything was fine. We can just hire more people to fix things like versus, okay, we're we're competing and we need to go fast and we need to be, we need to get things done. And how would you say that uh, having that experience as a founder of having built um, you know, a bunch of companies already, how do you think that has influenced, you know, your approach to being a startup investor? I think it's um, done three things. One is um, it's, it's allowed me to hopefully give better advice than if I hadn't done all this stuff. And I think one of the reasons founders like working with me is I have very tactical advice. You know, I'm not, I don't say A players hire A players and blah, blah, blah. I say, okay, let's talk about your hiring pipeline and how do you expand it, you know, <laughs> and how do you run a good hiring process? Um, and so I think I tend to have advice that's a bit more grounded in like what 
what you need to do as an operator versus some theoretical thing that, you know, if, if you've only ever been in finance, you just don't understand how to run companies. Um, so I think that matters a lot. I think sometimes that helps with product assessment because you just have a natural intuition for, you know, this is a product an enterprise would actually use or, you know, oh, this actually won't work because there's too many potential um, buyers and, you know, you're, you'll have seven people in on every decision. It's just not going to, you should just choose one one function to sell to or whatever it is. And so I think there's some better intuition for some, some things like that. Um, a friend of mine runs a big venture team and he says, um, he used to run a giant company, you know, with multi hundred million dollar revenue stream. And he says, um, he likes to hire people who've stared product market fit in the face and flinched, you know, or had to decide whether to flinch or not. Right. And so he likes to hire people who've actually had to deal with, does the market want this product? And how can I tell, how can I tell if this is a good product? I, I can, I can see that. Now, one thing that the, that, you know, has come out, obviously, you know, there's reports that are talking about you being the biggest solo VC out there, a batting average of like 67% of uh, being able to track or to capture companies that are going to end up uh, raising a follow-on round. So incredible batting average. I guess from a strategy perspective, when it comes to the investment side of things, how would you say that that has evolved over time from maybe like when you started in 07, 08, you know, all the way up until now? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I have to admit, I haven't thought that deeply about that question. You know, I think um, I've, I've focused on very basic fundamentals of these things, which is how can I help people as much as possible when they start a company? And how can I be helpful throughout the life of the company, actually? And that may mean, um, you know, having ideas for people they can hire for CFO or, you know, Anderil had me interview their CFO finalists and be part of their hiring scrum for that right and so there's ways to actually be very useful if you've actually scaled things before um and then the other piece of it is how can i identify what are really interesting companies in a given moment in time and you know get involved with some of those companies because i'm effectively very techno optimistic and i want to i view technology as a force for good and i want to be involved with the most important technologies and companies at a given moment right i want to help push the future forward um and so a lot of my focus has been on those two things and it's very much what are the basics of those two things versus let me come up with some complicated thought structure. And I think it's back to, again, that grounding as an operator. Usually as an operator, you eventually realize you need to figure out the basics and then focus on the basics versus adding a bunch of unnecessary complexity to everything. <laughs> you know, like often strategies sound great and they just don't work. So uh, as you're thinking, as we're talking about operations, you know, scale and things like that, you actually wrote a... A really, a really good book. It's called High Growth Handbook, and you did that in 2018. What can the founders that perhaps you know that are listening right now to us? What can they learn from reading this book? Yeah, the book is really meant to be a set of tactical um, chapters around different areas of scaling a company, and so that's everything from how as you, can you as as the CEO manage your own emotions and your own time and prioritize what you should be, you should be doing through to how do you buy a company for the first time or do M&A or how do you do a reorg? Uh, how do you deal with a board member who's acting badly? And so the book is really meant to be almost like a reference guide where you can say, okay, now I'm dealing with this issue where I have a VP who's acting badly and you jump to that section and read about it. And then it's interspersed with interviews um, with different leaders from the industry, you know, folks like uh, Patrick Collison from Stripe or Reid Hoffman or Sam Altman, um, talking about specific aspects of how they've run companies or um, dealt with specific issues. And so it's meant to both be my own perspective, but also the perspectives of great operators. 
So talking about grid operators now and what's coming, you know, especially with this macro, you know, environment, you were talking about what's hap- what's going to kick in in 2025 with layoffs and things like that. Where are things heading? You know, what they can perhaps, you know, the founders that are listening right now, you know, learn, you know, from 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 what you are seeing, the insights and and also how can they prepare themselves as best as possible for what's coming? You know, I think we're about to hit a very rough patch. And I think the last year and a half was just a warm up. And most of the things that happened happened in public markets. And so public markets now have basically adapted and they're, they're roughly at where they have been historically in terms of multiples. And so when people talk about how this is a low period, no, it's not a low period. This is a very normal period now in terms of where valuations are. And what hasn't adjusted yet is private markets because people raise so much money. That there's a time delay between when you raise money and when you have to raise again. And so I think next year and um, maybe part of 2025 are going to be the really tough times because there's going to be a lot of layoffs. There's going to be a lot of shutdowns. I think maybe a third of the, of the unicorn companies will go under or some large number over the next you know, one to three years. And so I just think um, we've deferred a lot of pain because there was such available capital. And now the capital is going away because people are not going to, if you have a company that's burned $100 million to generate $5 million of revenue, nobody's going to give you that next round of funding. And so I think um, a lot of companies are about to go under. And so as a founder, I think you have to make a few decisions. Number one is, do you fundamentally have a good business or not? If not, how do you, how do you make it a great business? If you can't make it a great business, then you have four options, right? You can change direction, but the later the stage of the company and the more money you've raised, the more you've done, the harder that is to do. So usually that's not a good idea. Um, You can sell. And if you think you should sell, you should probably start selling now because next year will be much harder to sell because everybody will be selling next year as they run out of money. And I think a lot of people think that they're going to be able to sell and they just aren't going to be able to because fundamentally um, the you know, say that there's seven observability tools, maybe one or two of them get bought, but the other five don't, right? There's just too many companies doing the same thing, but also each large player that can buy you is either blocked by the FTC now, um, or um, the companies that are acquiring things don't want to take on a lot of burn, right? So if you have a high burn team, nobody will want to buy you. Um, Third, uh, you can raise more money, but that's going to become really hard um, and it's getting harder and harder all the time. Uh, and so often I hear founders say, well, worst case, I can do a, a down round. No, the worst case is you go under, right? You should be cutting costs now in anticipation of never raising money again. You should literally think of it as what if I can never raise money again? And then your last option is um, to just shut down and return money. And I think too few people are doing that. I think people should probably consider that if they have $50 million and it's still five years or six years of runway, but the company isn't really working very well the best years of their lives are this moment in time in terms of flexibility, in terms of ability to start another company, in terms of you know, jumping on the AI train and building a new, a new AI startup, whatever it is they want to do. And I think people misunderstand that because the older you get, the more obligations you have. You have kids, you have family members that start to get sick, you have all sorts of other things to deal with. And so the very best time in your life to start a company is probably now while you have this other startup. And so the best thing you can do for yourself in some cases is either sell or shut down because it frees you up, you know. I hear you. You know, cost opportunity. And uh, I, I hear you there on being available and kids and all that stuff, how it complicates the logistics. Now, the last question that I wanted to ask you here, Elad, is if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment that you were still at Google, you know, thinking about giving your notice and doing something of your own, 
And let's say you were able to have a sit down with that younger self and being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? So I'd probably go back to like undergrad. And number one, I just say, you know what, don't study all these other things. Just study CS or maybe do CS and math because I just did the math for fun, you know. Um, and then two is just start building something straight out of school, you know, and just go for it. Um, or maybe even drop out. I don't know. Like, I don't think everybody should drop out. I think most people who drop out don't do well. Um, but I do have a lot of friends where they got an extra, you know, five to 10 years of trying things because they dropped out initially and just went for it. And so I think um, too often I hear people say, well, I need to do these seven things so I can learn how to do a startup. And often my advice is, well, especially if you're already working at another company, just go do the startup. Like what else is there to learn? Like you'll learn way more in six months of a startup than the next 10 years preparing to quote unquote do a startup. So I just think it's one of those things that if you want to go do something, you should go do it. Um, I think that's similarly true for investing. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I'll start investing in 20 years or in 10 years and it'll be my retirement job. And you're like, well, then you don't really want to do the job, right? If that's what you love and that's what you want to do, just go do it. So I just think it's one of those things where um, people talk about lifelong learning all the time and I'm much more interested in lifelong doing. You know, I think the best way to learn something is to do it. I love that. I love that. So Elad, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, probably LinkedIn. Easy enough. What, what is the Twitter handle? At uh, Elad Gill. Amazing. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Uh, thanks so much for including me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.